Uh, hey, so one of the best shows ever, one of the best shows ever, in my opinion, is this show called Dirty Jobs with Micro. How many of you guys seen this show, Dirty Jobs with Micro? Lots of people, okay. All right, so Gen Z, you got to get on this show, okay? For, for a couple of reasons. One, it was just a great show, and it's kind of like a documentary series show. And two, you might find a job on, featured on the show that you go, hey, maybe I should get this job uh, instead of keep going to NAU. And so I'm not trying to say going to NAU is bad. I'm just saying there's a lot of trades out there that might be worth looking at. And so, but the, here is the concept of the show. If you didn't see the show, the show was this. They took this guy, Mike Rowe, and they put him in all these dirty jobs, like literally dirty jobs, where he was doing all kinds of stuff. And it was just this really compelling show where we got to see him do anything from, like, painting bridges to digging wells to he did lots and lots of gross stuff with animals. Like, that was, like, every episode it felt like and he did lots and lots of gross stuff with plumbing systems like he did all kinds of gross stuff these were just really dirty jobs and when it was out I think it came out when I was in high school I'm not quite sure but when it was out it was just a hit everybody was watching the show everybody was uh, like delighting in this show and seeing these jobs that we didn't even know existed existed and it was a hit I think for at least three reasons. One of the reasons it, it was a hit is because we got this inside look into all these jobs that we didn't even know existed, like painting a bridge. We're like, oh, somebody has to do that. Like, that's a real job, right? So it was a hit because of that. I think it was a hit because it brought dignity to all of these workers doing these really dirty jobs that are actually needed jobs in society, like essential jobs for society. And so I think it was a hit because it brought dignity to all these workers. I think it was a hit because it was dirty and nasty sometimes, and that was just kind of interesting. And then I think it was also uh, a hit because you began to see how necessary some of these jobs were to get even just small things like food on the table or food in grocery stores for us as a society. Like, we were like, wow, I didn't know those things needed to happen. Those jobs needed to be worked in order for me to get, I don't know, corn or chicken or whatever it might be. And so it was this super compelling show. Everybody was watching. I really actually mean that. Like, if you haven't seen the show before, kind of look up like a best of list and go try to watch a few of the episodes because it, it was just a really interesting, compelling show. And today, we're continuing in the book of Colossians, which is this book in the Bible that was actually a letter that Paul, the apostle, one of the leaders of the church, he wrote to this little church, this new church in Colossae, as we've been talking about. This new group of believers who probably didn't have any Jewish background or weren't Jewish themselves. And he wrote this letter to help them know what it means to follow Jesus, what it means to be the church, the body of Jesus. And today, the passages that we're in, in Colossians, in this letter, are passages that are almost like a, a Dirty Jobs episode, the Apostle Edition. Like, we almost get to see, okay, this is how Paul worked. This is what Paul did. These, this is what it was like for him to be a, an apostle. This is what he valued. This is why he was doing what he's doing. And so today, the two passages that we're going to be in in Colossians, they are kind of like an episode of Dirty Jobs 
semicolon, the apostle edition, okay? And so we're going to see how Paul works and describes his own work. And so we're going to see four sorts of works of Paul today. We're going to see four ways that Paul labors for the church, specifically. How does Paul labor? And, and we'll see these four sorts of labors of Paul's. Paul has a labor of suffering. Paul has a labor of the word. Paul has a labor towards maturity for the church, and Paul has a labor of love for the church. And so that's what we're going to look at. We're going to look at those four labors, and so we're going to hop into this text that starts in verse 24 of chapter 1 of Colossians today. If you need a Bible, there's Bibles back there, but the words will also be on the screen. And so as we go, you know, I like to break it up sometimes. And so we'll, we won't read it all at once. We'll kind of break little chunks here, and we're going to start with just reading one verse. And so if you have your Bibles, turn with me uh, to chapter 1 of Colossians, verse 24, and we're just going to start off by reading just this one verse. It says this, Now, this is Paul, I rejoice in my sufferings for you. For I'm completing in my flesh what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for his body, that is, the church. Okay, let's stop there for now. So Paul is saying, hey, I'm, I'm going through suffering right now, but I'm rejoicing in it. So th- this is what was going on with Paul. He was probably writing this letter from a prison cell. He'd been imprisoned for believing in Jesus. He'd been imprisoned for proclaiming Jesus to various places. And, he, and, and so he's thrown into prison, and he's writing this letter to them. And Paul, actually, he becomes this figurehead for Christianity in his day, where he experiences all sorts of suffering in all sorts of towns, whether it's beatings, whether it's being dragged out of town, whether it's being thrown, like almost stoned to death, like thrown rocks at him, or imprisoned constantly. And Paul is noting those sufferings, and he actually says, no, I, I actually rejoice in my sufferings because I'm getting to complete what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for you, the church, the body of Jesus. This is kind of a confusing verse for us because we go, wait, wait, Something was lacking in Christ's afflictions? Like something was lacking in, in, in Jesus' work on the cross? And, and some of us Christians right away, we go, hey, I, I've, I've been around this scene for a while. I know that we say Jesus died once and for all. So why is Paul here saying, hey, there was something lacking in Jesus' afflictions? And even what's funny is that phrase, once and for all, comes from another letter that Paul wrote. So what is Paul trying to say here when he's saying there was something lacking in Christ's afflictions? Like that doesn't sound right to us. Here's what I think Paul is doing. I think Paul is describing his labor of suffering for the church while connecting it to Jesus's labor of suffering for the church. And so Paul right here, he's not saying uh, something like, hey, he himself has to do something more to add to Jesus' work on the cross. He's not saying that he has to do something so more so people's sins are forgiven or atoned or for or taken care of. He's not saying that. I think he's saying something more like this, that even though the cross, even though Jesus' blood on the cross, which he talked about a lot in the last couple of passages, even though Jesus' blood on the cross atoned for anyone who calls on the name of Jesus, that it was, it was essentially like God's plan all along that this would unfold, this proclamation of Jesus' blood would unfold through his people. 
And, and, and as God kind of patiently waits, instead of just popping, like Jesus dies on the cross and he resurrects, God could have just restored everything right then. But God had this plan to say, no, I want to patiently wait so that more and more and more can turn to me. And so Paul is saying that waiting of God was part of his plan. And part of his plan for Paul was that Paul would proclaim the gospel, and as he proclaimed the gospel, helping people to see Jesus' cross and resurrection, that Paul would experience suffering. And so when Paul is saying, hey, there was something lacking in Christ's afflictions, he's not saying it wasn't enough, so I had to do all these things. What he's saying is it was God's plan that I, in one sense, would go through suffering so that more people would get to know King Jesus. That more people would know him and understand him and cling to him. Paul is not, Paul, so when Paul's saying that something's lacking, he's not saying it wasn't enough. He's saying that the cruciform life, the cross-shaped life, that, that as Paul lives out a life that looks similar and mirrors Jesus in a lot of ways, that is something that God is patiently allowing so that more people can know Jesus. So that that church in Colossae could know Jesus. And so it's not that uh, there's something, like Paul's not making less of the cross. He's just saying the work that I'm doing mirrors in a lot of ways Christ's afflictions for the church. More people, Paul's like going, more people need to hear the gospel. And he's even going like, you Colossians are evidence of that. And Paul is basically going like, I'm, (laughs) I'm happy I'm happy to go through suffering this way and in another place so that you can have King Jesus, so that you can know about Jesus, so you can know the good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection and all the restorative power it brings and will bring. Like Jesus has gotten such a hold of Paul that he rejoices in suffering for Christianity. I can't, I, I can't imagine that, guys. I can't, ima- like, I can't imagine that. Like Jesus has gotten such a hold of Paul that as he's in prison writing to this group of people he's never met, he's only heard about, he's rejoicing. Right? If you go through Acts, read the book of Acts, and you see all the different things that it mentions that Paul went through, I can't imagine rejoicing. I would only be lamenting. And Paul does some of that in his letters as well where he laments. But Paul is rejoicing. Like, Jesus has gotten such a hold of Paul that Paul's like, yeah, when all these people drug me out of town after throwing a bunch of rocks at me till I passed out, it was worth it for you, Colossians. It was worth it so that you might know Jesus. I, in a sense, had to go through that so people like you, church in Colossae, could know the gospel. Paul went through that so people like us could know Jesus. I don't know. If someone came to me and said, Anthony, here's, here's the deal. You're going to be in Flagstaff. You're going to preach the gospel. The whole town's going to hate you. Some people might believe, but the whole town's going to hate you. They're going to try to beat you up all the time. They're going to throw you in prison all the time. Uh, but here's the thing. If you do that, there's this other town you've never heard of before in this other place, probably in Tennessee. I don't know much about Tennessee. And they're going to believe, that's not a bash on Tennessee, I just don't know much about it. Um, and this little town, they're going to come to Christ because of your proclamation of the gospel in Flagstaff. Are you down? 
I'd be like, no, I'm not down. That sounds like a bad deal. Like, that just sounds horrible. That sounds horrible. And yet, Jesus has gotten such a hold of Paul, who once hated the church, that Paul says, no, I'm, I actually really am happy to go through this so that more would know Jesus. This is a, a look into Paul's labor of suffering. Paul has this labor of suffering that mirrors Jesus. And I just, I don't know how a person takes on that sort of labor of suffering willingly unless Jesus has gotten a hold of their heart. Let's keep going. Um, let's look at Paul's labor of the word, which is in the next couple verses. We'll read 25 through 27. The ne- Paul's labor of the word. He says this, I have become its servant. Paul's saying, I've become the servant of the church, the body of believers. I've become its servant according to God's commission that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. God wanted to make known among the Gentiles the glorious wealth of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. I love that first song we sang today because it kind of mirror, it really uses some of that same imagery. But Paul, right here, he talks about his laborer of the word. He says, I have this work to do, and it's to proclaim God's word. This, that, this is a fun study for you, is to just go throughout the Bible and look where it talks about the word of God and how the word of God goes out and how the word of God has a work in this world to proclaim God, who he is, the works he's done in the world, and, and it does something to our hearts when, when we hear the word of God. Maybe not always, but it's, it, the word of God works works in the world. And Paul is saying he, his work, part of his work as an apostle, part of what God gave him to do was to go out and proclaim this word, pro- proclaim this mystery of God working in the world. In particular, when he's saying, hey, this mystery has been revealed, he's saying God has been doing all these things through the people of Israel, and then Jesus comes along and reveals everything in Jesus. Like, Jesus is the mysterious work of God's restoration in this world. Jesus shows us so much about this. He even kind of goes on and says, listen, Jesus is not just the God of Israel. Jesus is the God of everyone. That's why he's saying the Gentiles thing. And that's why he's saying, you Colossians, Christ in you is the hope of glory. He's saying that God, that the word of God has gone out in such a way that, it, that they now have Jesus in them. This word mystery here, it's, it's actually a real interesting word. You'll find in the Bible, a lot of times, the authors of the Bible will take cultural words or words from other religions, and they will kind of reappropriate, reappropriate those words under the banner of Jesus, while also still kind of using the meaning of those words. So for any of you guys in the room really freaked out by the words of culture and Christians using them, I would just say you might not like the Bible if you knew Greek. And so that's just my baggage you're hearing right now. But um, so, Paul, so Paul is using this mystery word that had a connection to uh, these mystery religions of the day. If you study history, you study that time, you're going to see that there's these things called mystery religions. And mystery religions were these religions where there would be these little groups that would say, hey, come join our group. We have the secret knowledge. If you do these certain things or read these certain things or pray these certain prayers or pray these certain prayers, you will, uh, 
get this secret knowledge. You'll know the mysteries like we know the mysteries. And so there were all these different kinds of mystery religions. And Paul is using that same sort of mystery word that those mystery religions would have been using. But what he does with it is really different than what they do with it. Their mystery, you had to kind of strive for, jump through hoops, do all these things, be accepted by their group in order to know the mystery of God or transcendence or heaven or whatever. But Paul is saying, actually, the mystery of God is Jesus. And it's not so much a mystery. It's only a mystery in the sense that God is doing something that's kind of astounding and and hard to understand in moments. But God's mystery is not secrets. God's mystery is public truth. Paul is saying like his proclamation of the word is not some kind of secret club that only a few can join. That his proclamation of the word of God is public truth that should be brought to bear on everyone's lives. That's what Paul's proclaiming. He's saying God's word, God's mysteries are mysteries that he lets us in on and you don't have to strive to do it. He just has revealed that through Jesus. And by putting Jesus in you, in some sense, Colossians. And so I just love that there's this kind of interplay between this mystery of God and the mystery religions. And, and, and the mystery of Jesus is not a mystery of secrets and striving. It's a mystery that's actually just public truth. And it's mysterious because you kind of go, God came to earth and took on flesh and lived a holy life and died a death on a cross that atones for my sins, and he raised from the dead, and he wants to give me that resurrection. Like, it's mysterious. You're like, God really did this? But it's public truth. It's public truth that affects everyone, whether they think it does or not. It's public truth for anyone to look to and cling to and grab onto. And so Paul has this deep commitment to this labor of the word so that people will know the mystery of God that is this public truth. And even as I kind of read through this, I just saw that Paul had this, like, this ministry, right, of, of proclaiming the word of Jesus and proclaiming who Jesus is and proclaiming the good news of the king. And I just, I just wonder if all of us should begin to think through our lives of, of, of having like a mini ministry in labor of the word of proclaiming the work of God, proclaiming Jesus, proclaiming the Bible to people. Now, I know it's like really not in vogue to like talk to our friends. About, like I actually constantly, a lot of my friends who would say they don't believe in God or don't believe in Jesus, they'll say things to me like, yeah, hey man, totally cool you're, you're a pastor and a Christian as long as you don't talk to me about it. I'm just like, it's going to get awkward at some point. Which, what, what was funny is recently when that happened, it was like during a 40-minute conversation about God and Jesus and stuff that they said that. And so I, I get that it's just, it's just not in vogue right now to talk about these things. And part of that is because a lot of people that talk about Jesus a lot in the past 50 years have done it in such a transactional, weird, salesman way. And it's really hurt a lot of people. And they've, they've done that even, I've noticed, at the cost of their own virtue. Like they feel like they're virtuous because they tell you about Jesus, but meanwhile they're like horrible to everyone around them. And so I get why it's, it's not in vogue anymore to talk about Jesus, but I'm just going to say this. Paul seemed to be convicted that he should have a ministry of the word a labor in the word, a labor proclaiming the word of God. And I would just ask you guys in here, wrestle with that a little bit. What does your ministry in laboring for the word of God, proclaiming the word of God, look like? I don't think it's going to look exactly like Paul's. 
I don't think it's going to look exactly like kind of like all those Christians we've seen that kind of done it wrong and done it painfully. But what is it going to look like for you? Because here's the deal. How are people going to know Jesus unless we proclaim Jesus? The quick answer is the Internet. But what I've noticed is sometimes the loudest voices talking about Jesus are, are showing a distortion of who Jesus is. And so we, we have to go, do we want a distortion of Jesus out there, or we, do we want the real Jesus out there being proclaimed to people? If, if that's the case, we have to be a word and deed people. We have to be people that live like Jesus, love like Jesus, and also talk about Jesus to people. At least that's what Paul did. I'm convicted by seeing that here in the Word today. And so Paul had this labor of the Word. But he also had this labor, this third kind of labor we're going to see, is Paul had a labor towards maturity for the church. Paul had a labor towards maturity for the church. And we see that in verse 28, and we'll see it through the first verse of chapter 2. So read with me the next three verses that describe Paul's labor towards maturity. He says this, we, and Paul's saying him, Timothy, the, anyone with, like all of Christians with him, we proclaim him warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. I labor for this, striving with his strength that works powerfully in me, for I want you to know how greatly I'm struggling for you. For those in Laodicea and for all who have not seen me in person. Let's stop there. Paul labors for the Colossians, this new church, so that they might become mature in Jesus. He wants their faith in Jesus. He wants their allegiance to Jesus. He wants their following of Jesus to not just be stagnant and stay in one place. He wants that allegiance to Jesus and following of Jesus to change them in a way that they become more mature, more mature in Christ. If you're going, what does it mean to be more mature in Christ? It's to look like him more. It's to be like him more. It's to love better, love truer, persevere, to look more and more and more like Jesus and be more and more like Jesus and know Jesus more and more and more. And this is what Paul is doing. This is the sort of work that he, he and Timothy and other church leaders are saying, that we're saying, like, this is what we're doing for you guys. And I, Pastor Luke at Redemption Gateway, he, he talks about verse 28 as something that he, as a pastor, goes back to a lot to remember what his work as a pastor is. And, and I, I, felt, I found that really helpful. And I go, man, this is what I'm doing as a pastor like, I want you guys to know that verse 28 is my attempt at the sort of work of what I want to do for, for this church, this body as a pastor. Like, I, I want to proclaim Jesus to you. I want to proclaim who he is. I want to proclaim his teachings to you. I want to say, how does his teachings, like, apply to us today? How do we understand his teachings today? How do we understand him today? How do we hear his word today? I'm trying to warn you guys about your heart's potential drift to choose to love things that won't love you back the way Jesus can love you back. 
Like, I want to do all of those things. Like, this is my labor for you guys as a church. I want to labor in those ways, proclaiming Jesus in those ways, so that we would mature as a people, so that we would become more like Jesus. That's, that's my hope. I know up here sometimes what I say can be really annoying for two reasons. Sometimes I'm annoying, okay? I'm like an annoying person sometimes. I've been punched in the face just randomly before, okay? You don't get that if you're not an annoying person, okay? I get it. And you can just rest with that and give me grace when I'm that kind of an annoying person. But sometimes I think I'm annoying up here because Jesus is trying to do a work, speaking to us, maturing us through his word, and I'm saying some things that are pressing on the immaturities of our heart. And often when the immaturities of our heart get pressed on, we bristle and we try to blame something else instead of go, maybe I just got to change that about myself. I've been, this is just a total aside, and but I've been studying, like, how do people change? And I was listening to this podcast series that talks about, like, wicked people. How do wicked people change? And, and what this counselor in particular was kind of talking about was saying, like, they need to understand their guilt in certain situations. Not to feel shame, not to walk around guilt-ridden, but, like, if they just reject that there's things wrong with them at times or that they've done wrong things, they're never going to change. And so sometimes up here as I proclaim Jesus, what's going to happen is Jesus' proclamation to us about who he is and what it means to follow him and what truth and reality is, it's going to make our hearts bristle. It just is for a variety of reasons. And I think part of that is, is because Jesus is inviting us into maturing in him. Not maturing in ourselves, but maturing in him. And so guys, I, I just, I want you guys to know, I strive, I am striving hard as a pastor, maybe not perfectly, maybe not as hard as I'm even saying right here, to help us mature in Christ. That's my goal for us. That can only happen through God's strength and power, like Paul is saying here. It can only happen when I'm, like, connected to God in prayer, I think. I don't think I can even strive the right way if I'm not connected to him in prayer. But I want you to know that's what I'm striving for. I'm striving that we become mature in Jesus. I don't have a secret agenda. And if I do, I don't know about it, and my counselor will tell me at some point. But I don't have some secret agenda. I'm not up here trying to do, like, I just want you to have Jesus. I just want you to have more of Jesus. I don't know. I was just thinking about this last night. Like, I don't know what happened. At some point, I was just like, Jesus just got a hold of me. And I'm just like, I'm following Jesus now. I love him. I know he loves me. I don't know how that happened. But now you have to deal with me because I'm just trying to proclaim that guy who's got a hold of me. I'm trying to proclaim him, and I'm trying to proclaim him to us in particular so that we would mature in him. Paul had this labor towards maturity. And and if we really want to become mature in Christ, it's going to change us. Two years down the line, if we're sitting in these same seats, you will look different and the seats won't if we're maturing in Christ. And so, church, I love you. Thank you for letting me struggle with you in my own immaturities as Christ matures me. But I'm, I'm going to keep struggling for this because I want us to have Jesus and more of him. Okay, let's finally look at Paul's uh, labor of love. Paul has a labor of love for the church as well, and we see it in verses 2 through 5 of chapter 2. 
He says this, I want their hearts. He's talking about anybody that has not met him. Laodicea, Colossae, these churches that he's never met or seen. He goes, I want their hearts to be encouraged and joined together in love so that they may have all the riches of complete understanding and have the knowledge of God's mystery, Christ. In him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I'm saying this so that no one will deceive you with arguments that sound reasonable. For I may be absent in body, but I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to see how well ordered you are and the strength of your faith in Christ. We'll stop there today. But Paul wants, Paul wants anyone that hasn't met him to know that he has a labor of love for them. Like the reason that he does this is because he loves them. Like God has done such a work in Paul that he loves them. And so Paul continues in this labor. And part of why he can rejoice is because he loves these people he's never met. He loves these brothers and sisters in Christ that he doesn't know. Paul has this labor of love and he just wants them to know. He loves them even though he hasn't met them, even though he might be absent. He wants them to know that even though there's people out there with all sorts of valid, or not valid, but reasonable sounding philosophies that are intriguing to them, Paul wants them to know, hey, I want you to know I love you. I love you. And I'm saying this because I love you. I don't know why they're saying it, but I'm saying this because I love you. Paul has this labor of love for the church in Colossae. And, and one, one verse in particular just stuck out to me as something to kind of apply to us and help us to know Jesus more because of Paul's labor of love. And it's verse 2. I'm going to reread verse 2. But he says this, I want their hearts to be encouraged and joined together in love so that they may have all the riches of complete understanding and have the knowledge of God's mystery, Christ, Jesus, King Jesus. He wants them to have King Jesus. And the thing that sticks out to me in this verse is Paul says, I want every Christian that hasn't met me to know that they are actually joined together in love. That's what he, how he says it. In the ESV translation, it says, knit together in love. He's saying God has done such a work in the people of God, in you, church in Colossae, in you, church in Laodicea, in you, church in Flagstaff, that we as the people of God, we're not just a bunch of individuals showing up. We have been sown together in love, by love. We're sewn together. We're joined together in love. And why this sticks out to me is because Paul says in our knit togetherness, that's where we can find and know Jesus more. I, I have not heard a whole lot of sermons that say, hey, do you want to get to know Jesus more? Go knit yourselves together in love to the church in Flagstaff, to the church in your neighborhood. I haven't heard a whole lot of sermons like that. I've heard a whole lot of sermons like, you want to know the love of God more? Go pray more. You want to know the love of God more? Go read your Bible more. I think those things are true, and we should do those things. But Paul here is saying, if you want to know Jesus more, continue to live into what God has done. God has knit you together in love. Continue acting and living as a people knit together in love. Isn't that wild? That we need each other to know Jesus more? I don't know why Jesus does it this way. 
Like, God reveals himself in all sorts of ways, through his word, through his spirit, but he also reveals himself through his people. And I think one day when I meet Jesus, I'm going to say, hey, I don't know if that was the best idea. And then, I don't know, he might slap me or something. But, but for some reason, Jesus has knit us together in love. And that's part of the way that we know Jesus. And this is why division is so bad for the church. This is why there's such strong language about division in the New Testament is because part of knowing God is being knit together in love. That's wild to me. Church, if you want to know Jesus more, live into your knit togetherness. Knit yourself to his people. That is a way to know Jesus more and know his love and know his understanding and know his knowledge. Is by being knit together with all sorts of people that are not like you. That's what Paul is saying here. We miss out on some of our understanding of Jesus when we don't knit ourselves together like a family in love. Remember, don't, don't just knit yourselves together or don't just handcuff yourselves together, but you're knit together like lo- by love. We're knit together in love. What does it mean for us to be together as a people in love? Loving one another, connected by our very love for one another. And I think Jesus' vision of love is a lot bigger than just kind of affection for one another. So I'm not saying you just have to like each other perfectly. But I do, have to, I do think we're called to love each other the way that Jesus has loved us. And so if you want to know Jesus more, a way to do that, Paul seems to be saying here, is by living out your knit-togetherness. And so Paul has, he has quite the labor of love for the church in Colossae, and I think it should encourage us to have a labor of love for one another as well. And so as we, as we keep going through this book in Colossians, I'm just I'm reminded of how good this letter is. I, I, years ago, I think I spent some time in this letter, and I, and I liked it, but I, it hasn't been this letter that's always been coming to my mind in recent years. And as we've been going through it, I'm just like, man, this is, there is just some beautiful things about Jesus. There's just some beautiful things about God and his work and how he uses us as the church. And so I hope that as we go through this letter, as we continue to go through this letter, we let it form us as a people. And so today we got to see Paul's labor of suffering. We got to see Paul's labor of the word. We got to see Paul's labor towards maturity. And we got to see Paul's labor of love. And so my hope for us is that that we would be a people that continue on the foundation that really Jesus laid. And then in all these same ways, Paul and other Christians in Paul's day stood on that foundation of Jesus and kept proclaiming that foundation. I I hope that we can be a, a people that stand on that foundation and live out that foundation together so that the world would know Jesus and see Jesus. So church, may we be that sort of people that Jesus and his people strived for. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you for your son. Thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you for using people like Paul and many others to continue like living out the cross in a sense. Like, God, that is wild to me that that's how you would do it. It's wild to me that Paul would even kind of say something like that. But God, that's, that's what you've done. That's how you're working. That's how you're moving. 
And so, God, I, I just pray uh, that as we looked at all these ways that Paul labored, that we would hear the ways we are to labor in, in similar fashions in our lives. God, I just want us to have you. I just want us to have you, God. You yourself have labored in order to reveal yourself to us. Paul continued that labor to help us see and know you. So, God, I just pray right now for all of us. Help us to see you more. Help us to understand you more. Help us to draw closer to you. I I think, God, you really got to do a work in us for that to even be possible. God, thank you for this public truth of the gospel, the good news of King Jesus. So, God, thank you for all that. Lord, we love you and we need you. Help us to be the people you want us to be. But let us find all our strength in you and what you've done and respond to that. Amen.